and we're going to be in chapter 2. So find your Bible and go to the end and then switch back a few pages past Hebrews, going from this direction, and uh, find yourself 2 Timothy. It's also in the bulletin. We're continuing our series in this book. We look every week at what God's Word says, looking passage by passage, letting it influence us, letting it shape us. And so today we're at 2 Timothy 2, verse 14 and following. Let's read this together. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord Depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is the word of the Lord. When I was in high school, uh, I served on what is called the mock trial team. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with mock trial. It's basically a high school team that's set up to imitate a legal team and so you have trials and they're mock trials they're they're made up but you have all of the parts of the legal process you have a judge you have attorneys you have witnesses and you have verdicts and uh, one particular time for one of our little mini conferences we put on a trial and uh, it was a murder trial and I was selected to be the attorney for the prosecution And so, just like in a real trial, I received mounds and mounds of paperwork and um, had to go through it and look and make a case. And so I started doing that very well-documented thing. And I think what they did is they took a real case, a real live case, and then they changed some details about it. They changed the names and they changed some of the situations. But the main thing that they did is they changed um, how how directly... uh, how directly obvious it was. They made the case ambiguous. They made it so that if 
the prosecution and defense were looking at the same materials, they could both make a case because they wanted it to be a fair trial. They wanted uh, everybody to be able to participate. And so you had things like this. The witnesses had some reason to be believed, and yet there was always something in the text that they gave you that was reason for you not to believe them, some kind of reason to doubt them. The, the suspect was had some things that were, that were obviously ways that are leading to his or her guilt, but also they had some questionable alibis that could be defended. And so basically you had this, this case that was very meticulously even-handed. And of course, it was desi- designed this way so that we as students could make our best showing based on the material we had and we could go against a real challenge. So we did. We did our best. We put my team together, put together this case, and we had a strong case. We argued it. We argued it well. I even won an award. I mentioned only to impress you. Um, but, you know, the details of that case, they, they bothered me. I am a, I'm a truth-oriented person, you may have noticed. I like us talking about the truth and presenting the truth and I want to find the truth and so it bothered me even though I knew that the case was completely made up and and that they had changed the details of it so that you couldn't exactly land on what the quote-unquote truth was it bothered me I wanted to know the truth and so I still would sometimes think about it even years later I wonder if I got that one right you know even though it was completely made up. I discovered then, and I think this is just the truth, that the truth is something that exists. It is necessary for us to say that the truth exists, to defend the fact that the truth exists, but we also know that the truth is not always straightforward. can't look at the scriptures and say that there isn't truth we believe in truth but that truth is not always straightforward that is why I think what Paul gives us in 2nd Timothy 2 is such a beautiful challenge in verse 15 we might consider this the heart of the passage do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling the word. That seems to me to be a beautiful phrase that captures what it is that we are supposed to do with the truth. The truth is neither used to dominate, to make us self-righteous, to be proclaimed in the people's faces, nor is it to be disregarded and put aside and, and made light of or, or, on, or acted as if it was only my truth that everybody could have their own truth. The truth is real, but it's complicated. So he says you need to rightly handle it. That phrase, so important. Rightly. The, the Greek word there is ortho. You recognize that root everywhere. Orthodoxy. It means right praise or right worship. Orthopedic. Right Straight bones. An orthopedic is someone who is in the muscular system. It means straight. It means on target. And then to rightly handle means 
to cut straight. The word handle there means to cut a straight path. And so Paul says you need to do the work of cutting a straight path towards the truth. The image there is most likely one of a farmer who has a cut through his field and he makes decisions. He looks at, at the crops and how they're growing and, and he makes a decision to cut through there. And he says that's what you have to do with the truth. It's not something that is only a verbal propositional thing. It's something that has to be handled. It takes wisdom. Now, we know this is true, any of us, if we think about it for a minute, if we've ever answered the question like this, do you like my casserole? And let's say for an instance that you don't. What is the truth? Even if you believe that the truth is to say, no, that I don't, and even if you believe that you should say those words, you also believe that you shouldn't say only those words. You give something else there. Does this dress make me look fat? These hard questions. I'm just going to leave that one out there. I'm not looking at anyone when I say it, right? Is this the best color on me? Maybe that one's a little safer. Is this the best color on me? Well, the truth. And then we think there's a dichotomy between caring for the person and giving them the truth. Paul says, Rightly handle that. I want to talk today about how we rightly handle the truth. And I want this to be for us a somewhat of a culture building sermon as well as we think about how we interact as a church. Maybe you've wondered what is it that we believe about the truth? What do we proclaim? Um, there, there are truth seekers out there who are on the news or marching in protest or you know all kinds of things and you think, well, where does this church stand on issues of truth? And I want to talk about that because I believe this passage helps us have a nuanced understanding and it, it, it encapsulates much of what we're trying to do here about the truth. How do we handle issues of the truth? How do we rightly handle the word of truth? That's what I want us to ask today. This word of truth, this of course is coming from Paul to Timothy. So there is a sense in which this passage is addressed to Timothy as a leader of the church. When you handle the word of truth, he's talking there, the word is both the Old Testament Scriptures, but also the message that Paul delivered to him. Right? He says you need to, you need to defend that message. Uh, we've talked about that from previous verses in this passage. He says you need to defend uh, the truth. You need to rightly handle this word of truth, the truth of Christ, truth issues of the Christian faith. And when we think about a right response to the truth, I want us to think rather than just in one term, let's think in three, three different strands that tie together the rope that makes a strong truth. Three strands that make this rope of truth. They are defense, Two, self-examination. And three, love. You need all three for it, the truth to be the full truth. First, we need defense. Rightly handling the word of truth means that we defend biblical truth. Already, some of you are saying, Amen. You've got to defend the truth. That is true. Look at verse 15. 
We are rightly handling the Word of truth. The Word of truth means there that this is a, a thing. The truth is a thing that we need to defend. Look later in verse 17 where he says, their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have, verse 18, swerved from the truth. Swerved from the truth. How can you swerve from the true path if there is no true path? Paul is very comfortable saying there is propositional truth. There is a way, a truth, and the life. There is a path. There are things that are worth defending. Paul assumes here that the truth can be known and the truth can be departed from. It is something that must be defended. What are we talking about here? What is the situation where he mentions these names? Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who swerve from the truth, saying, here's what they're teaching, that the resurrection has already happened. Now, what's going on there? These people are saying the resurrection has already happened. Now, he's not talking there about Christ's resurrection from the dead. Because obviously Paul would agree with them that Christ had been raised from the dead. He's not talking about Christ's resurrection. He's saying that they're teaching that the spiritual, the final spiritual resurrection has already happened. What that does, why that's wrong, why that's swerving from the truth is for a couple of reasons. First of all, it downplays the hope of the Gospel, which is a final future physical resurrection. When Jesus was raised from the dead, He was the first fruits of this resurrection. There's going to be a harvest of resurrections. The hope of the Scriptures is very tangible, very real, that we who are in Christ who die, our bodies waste away, but we will be resurrected in the last day. And so it takes away that very physical hope. But here's the second thing that it does when they teach that the resurrection has already happened. It does what it often does in false theology is there's an emphasis away from the physical to those who are enlightened and truly spiritual enough to understand. This is a danger that has existed in every age of the church where you say something like, if you are spiritual enough, then you can have all the blessings right now. If you truly know that you're resurrected, you can have the health, you can have the wealth, you can have the prosperity, you can have everything that you need right now because Christ, it's already finished. It's you that's the problem. You're not living into the reality. This is still very much alive. If Jesus has been raised from the dead and then you have also spiritually been raised and we are living in the new heavens and the new earth, why, Paul, are you in prison? If Paul really believed enough, if he was spiritual enough, he would have claimed those promises. That So they say, Paul says, defend against that. This could be one of the earliest forms of what we call the prosperity gospel. Where all the promises are already true and there's no idea of suffering anymore in the Christian walk unless you don't have enough faith. Very dangerous. Paul says they have swerved from the truth. And so what is his solution? He says you need to defend the truth. How do you defend the truth? Number one, you work hard at it, Timothy. You work hard. Verse 15, do your best 
to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Timothy, any truth seekers in the room. Some people will not understand. Some people will think that this is unpopular, that will make you unpopular, but you need to know in your gut that you're not doing anything that leads to your shame. You need to rightly handle the truth and work hard at it. Work hard at it. Don't automatically take the most popular way. These false teachers, their talk spreads like gangrene, he says. Why would it spread like that? It's a negative image, but, but of course he means that it's spreading positively. People are receiving this. They're believing this. And he says it's dangerous. The third way that you defend the truth is that you trust God for the results. In verse 19, he says this, but God's firm foundation stands. Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. God's foundation is not shaken by other people believing something that is not the truth. He says the Lord knows who are His. Instantly comforting Timothy. Comforting those of us who come and approach God's Word and try to rightly handle it. The Lord knows who are His. You work hard. You don't be ashamed. You don't seek the popular path automatically because the Lord knows who are His. It's a comforting word, but it's from a challenging context. That quote, the Lord knows who are His, comes from the book of Numbers, chapter 16. Moses has led the people out of, out of the Egypt into the way to the promised land. and In number 16, his leadership is challenged. Really hard passage to read. Number 16. The rebellion of the sons of Korah. Where the sons of Korah and 250 other people with them come to Moses and say, you're lording over us. You are power hungry. You, they, they falsely accuse him of being a bad leader. And Moses says, tomorrow God will decide. The Lord knows who are His. And then if you know the story, the ground opens and swallows them. Message is clear. You defend the truth and you leave the results to God. The Lord knows who are His. Defend the truth. Culturally speaking, as a church, this is important for us to say. We are called to defend the truth no matter what is said against it, no matter what popular things are going on. And it's not going to be perfectly done here by any of the pastors or staff. It's going to be difficult at times, but it must be defended. Now, here's where some of us are tempted to stop. The truth means that we defend the truth. That's what the truth is. It's propositional, verbal things. You need to say the right things, put the rubber stamp on it, and then be a faithful person. And being faithful means that you yell the truth all the time. Right? No. That is not the full picture of handling 
the truth. It is part of the picture. We must do it. We must defend the truth. But there are two other strands of this rope that must be included. The second one is this, self-examination. Look at verse 20. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. The reference here is to a house that would have instruments in it, and there would be some that are wood and clay. The dishonorable use would be things like garbage, like human waste. We have clay, we have wood for these things in the house. But on the other hand, we have silver and we have gold. We have things in the house that are used only for hospitality. And we don't mix the two. That's the picture there. And so it's obviously a picture of the church. The church is filled with this house. is filled with instruments of Righteousness and unrighteousness, they exist together, the Scripture says, to the end. And so what you expect for Paul to say next, if you're just reading that verse without the next one, is say, Timothy, clean out house. Hymenaeus, Philetus, anybody else, that you need to defend the truth, you need to get it out of here. Right? But he doesn't do that. He says in verse 21, Therefore, If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. He moves not just to the temple of the church, the house of God, but to the temple of the individual where God dwells. And he says, clean yourself out. Examine yourself for what is dishonorable. Rightly handling the truth means that there is self-examination in the mix. And we know this has to be true intuitively because we don't listen to someone who tells us that we're doing something wrong if they themselves are doing something wrong. If there is no self-examination, we have a hard time believing that what they're saying is true. Will we listen to someone who talks about the evils of modern sexuality if those, that person is caught the next week in a sex scandal? Will we listen to the, to the person who's talking about Christian ethics and then we find out that they've been embezzling money? We say that person is a hypocrite. They're not living according to the truth. And we need to see that that hypocrisy means that what they're saying, in a sense, is not true. Because truth always has this component to it. It's not just verbal. It's not just propositional. It matters how you live the truth. It matters that we examine ourselves. There is no such thing as truth in the abstract. It has to be part, it has to change us, or it's not the truth. It has to be useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And so we can say in one sense that even those who defend the truth at times are not living truly. And that life must be a part of the truth. Or it's not the full truth. There's a third strand that brings all this together. It is love. How do we rightly handle the truth? We said, well, the truth is the ability to cut straight a path. That is that picture of, of the word there. Rightly handling. Now, that's, that's true definitionally, but the way that it's used in the passage 
and the syntax and the way that the sentence is structured, it means more than just that truth is something that is a thing. Here's the, the best way I can describe it, copied from a commentary I read. It says this. He said this. It does not describe a virtue as much as a relationship. What does he mean? The truth is not something that you just have or don't have. There is a relationship with the truth. Rightly handle it. You need to, with wisdom, approach this relationship. There's a back and forth. There is a marriage, if you will. There is a friendship with. There is something that a person could engage with that is called the truth. And this is very clear in the way that Paul lays this out throughout this whole passage. We've passed over it a couple of times, but here we see this strand coming up everywhere. Paul's concern for loving people with the truth. Look at verse 22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. It's almost like he's personifying these things. You need to run away from youthful passions and you need to run towards this idea of righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Youthful passions here, even though it's often interpreted, interpreted as sexual desire, is not what Paul is talking about here. Even though he does tell us to flee sexual immorality and that we should run from it. There's, there, there's other Scripture passages that teach that. But here, what Paul is saying is the passions of being unloving. The youthful passions are what? Quarreling. Look at verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. That's the context of the whole passage. You don't need to be fighting about things. Look at verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. There's also this idea of irreverent babble in verse 16. Avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people in more and more ungodliness. See, Paul's concern is for the hearer, for the person who might be affected by the truth, not just the truth in the abstract. He wants the, his people to not fight, to not be known for their correctness uh, at, a, at the cost of other people, for their harshness, for their contentiousness, anything that might lead people astray. He says, run away from those youthful passions and pursue. You run away from and you pursue what virtues? The internal virtues that then lead to external love. He says, righteousness and faith. Basically, that lead to love and peace. And then verse 24 Kindness and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patience, patiently enduring evil. These are the things that have other people in mind. These are the fruit of the Spirit. Paul's saying you cannot be ultimately truthful if you hurt people, if you leave them behind, if you don't treat them well. 1 John, the book of 1 John makes the same point. You can't say that you love God and hate your brother. You can't say that propositionally it's true that I love God and hate your brother that doesn't compute. You can't say that. It's not true. 
If you love God, you will love your brother. So to love the truth doesn't just mean that you defend the verbal truth. It means that you do so in such a way that helps people. Otherwise, it's not the full truth. Three strands of the truth. Defense, self-examination, and love. All of these are needed for the truth. Now this has been somewhat of an abstract discussion of the truth. What is the truth? Let's put some feet on this for us this morning. What this means in practice, most often that I have seen in my own life and in the life of the church, is that we tend to have one, maybe two of these, and not the third. That's been my experience. Maybe we have defense of the truth, but without self-examination and love, and that always leads to hypocrisy. If you are all about defending the truth, but without looking at yourself and without loving other people, then that means that you are probably a hypocrite. You believe in truth, but you think that it only needs to be defended. If you have self-examination without defense and without love, you probably have ignorance. If your whole focus is on yourself and, and how I'm perceiving the truth, and you don't see that God's Word actually says some hard things and some true things, and you don't see how it's affecting others, then you're probably living in some kind of bubble. There's ignorance. If you have love without defense and self-examination, if your impulse is only to take care of people, is only to, to flatter and to stay together, then you might not be seeing what needs to be defended and what needs to be named in yourself, and so it leads to weakness. Without one, each one of these, you don't have the truth. But when you put together all three strands, you have Jesus. Who is the way. The truth and the life. No one spoke the truth, lived the truth, was the truth like Him. Did He defend the truth? He did. Verbally slicing the religious leaders of the day, turning over tables, telling people they needed to repent. He defended the truth. Did he stand up to self examination? He was the only one who did. He is the only one whose mouth had no deceit, the scripture says. There was no deceit found in him. He's the only ones with pure, clean hands and a pure heart who can ascend the hill of the Lord. He is pure. He is the only one who, when he spoke, had no hint of guile, no hypocrisy. Did he love? <laughs> How he loved everywhere. Jesus could speak the harshest truth and people would still know that He loved them. And they would take up their cross and they would follow Him because of His love. He is the truth. And you will not achieve the balance of truth in your life unless you are in Christ. The truth. He is the truth for you. There is no such thing as just my quote-unquote, my truth. There is the truth, Jesus Christ, and He is the one who gives you direction so you can cut straight with your life. You want to know how to 
rightly handle the truth, the live truthfully means to follow Him, even when it leads to unpopular things, even when it seems to challenge you personally, even when your beliefs are not fully where His beliefs are. You, when you call Him Lord, live in the truth. And then He teaches you with His way how to live the truth, how to bring these strands into your own life, into your relationships. In some of our marriages and our friendships, there is only defending going on. The point of every interaction is to figure out who is right. And that kills relationships Some of our relationships, friendships, marriage, maybe even in our parenting, there is very little self-examination. There's very little analysis of whether I am living into this pattern that I hold out for other people. In some of our relationships, there is very little love. What I mean by that is this gospel kindness that Paul wants his servant, Timothy, to embody. That even while he is defending the truth, people know he loves them. When we drop the gotchas and the I'm rights, almost entirely out of our relationships, we see the other person. We need all three of these strands in our relationships, and we need all three of them in this church. I'll close with this. Um, I've received a number of invitations this year to protest things. To march, to put signs up, either personally or for the church. And as you may have guessed, there is no one group that asks me that. It is everybody. Politically left, politically right, religiously left, religiously right. Go ahead and Define whatever you want to in your head with those things. In each case, I've looked at, the, at it on its merits and asked, should we do this? And in each case, I've politely declined. Why? Is it always wrong to protest? Of course not. It is not always wrong to protest. But when I looked at it, I thought it's hard to tell the whole truth here in this format doesn't mean that it's impossible. It doesn't mean that it can't be done. But it's hard. It's hard to tell the whole truth. When you're yelling at someone or you put a sign in someone's face, it's very hard to communicate to that person, I have examined the log in my own eye. And therefore, I can speak to this issue. It's very hard to love people with a sign. Even if the thing that's on the sign is what you would call true. The truth can be known. There is truth. There are things to defend. But can we bring in these other aspects as well? Self-examination. Love for others. And do things in such a way that Christ and His truth is revealed in all of its fullness. Are we living the truth? How do you do that? You must first be in Christ or your life will not be true. That is what the Scriptures say. But as you conform to His image, what you challenge yourself with is this. 
Which one of these strands is most lacking in me? Which one of these strands do I have the most trouble with? Perhaps you have trouble speaking up for the truth. You are put in situations where you feel you have to compromise. And every time you feel weaker and weaker because you know that you should say the truth, but you just avoid the truth. Paul has a word for that. He says, defend the truth. It does exist. Perhaps, though, you have trouble with self-examination and you think that the problems of the world mostly rest in other people. The Scriptures also have a word for you. Christ Himself, take the log out of your own eye before you address the speck in others. To be cleaning the house of your own soul before you clean up everybody else's life in the name of the truth. Perhaps you find it hard to love people who are problems to you for whatever reason. What you see when you see them is a desire to fix, to, to restore them to the truth. There may be moments for that, but do they know that you love them? That you, like Christ, would lay down your own life for them to know that is to communicate the truth to them. So we are called to examine ourselves. Look at these strands. Flee these youthful passions. And to grow up into the truth. Let's pray. Above all, Father, it is our desire to be in Christ, to be found in Him, to be in the truth. We are frayed ropes. We do this poorly. There are times when we need to speak and we're silent. There are times when we need to love someone and yet we just want to punish them. There are times when we feel our own hypocrisy rising up and we push it down because We don't want to be found out. Father, you dwell in inapproachable light. You shine into the darkness. And you know everything. And so, as we face the fact that our hearts condemn us, and they do, we know that we have not lived in the truth and been the truth even this week. You are greater than our hearts. So I pray that you would comfort us in the gospel that you are the truth, and so if we're in you, we are cutting straight. We're living the life that you would have us live. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.